0: This
1: is The Guardian. Just a warning before we begin, this episode contains references to violence and genocide. Please take care while listening. I'm Jane Lee, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is The Full Story.
2: So this is one of eight rooms
1: I have told you that we have more than eight rooms of archives. So this, we have nine districts in this room, including Goma. Not long ago, Guardian Australia's Ben Doherty got on a plane and flew to Rwanda.
3: So this is the box. Yeah. Oh. OK, we so can take it down? We can take it down. Oh, it's very heavy. OK, OK. And then you go... Oh. oh, yeah, very heavy. OK.
1: As part of a special investigation with the ABC's Four Corners program, Ben was looking into events that allegedly took place in
3: 1994. It's not easy. I can see why this would take a long time. Exactly. You get a very strong sense of the history here. Ah, really? And somewhere in these pages, somewhere in this box, exactly. is the record of the alleged activities of a man who now lives in suburban Brisbane. Hmm.
1: Thirty years ago, the world witnessed a brutal and bloody scene bodies bludgeoned by clubs and hacked by machetes. Thousands of corpses lying where they fell, an incomprehensible slaughter of over half a million men, women and children. This mass murder, occurring between April and July 1994, became known as the Genocide Against the Tutsi. Many of those accused of being involved in these killings fled Rwanda after the genocide. And it's alleged by Rwandan authorities that two of them may have settled in Australia... In this special episode of Full Story, Guardian Australia's Ben Doherty investigates these allegations and he speaks with genocide survivors in Australia and Rwanda of their hopes for justice. The Guardian and Four Corners do not suggest that the men who are the subject of the allegations are guilty, only that these serious allegations deserve further investigation by an appropriate authority. Today. The quest for restoration and reconciliation for Rwandan survivors of genocide. It's Monday, the 26th of February.
3: Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at borough.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at borough.com slash ACAST.
4: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot.
3: Why don't you stop here and, and we'll we'll walk from here? Is that a good? Yes. Okay. Have to do that. Harnika is a low-slung neighbourhood, hugging the green hills of Rwanda's Nyanza district. It's at the base of one of these verdant hills that, during the 1994 Rwandan genocide, it's alleged a roadblock was set up, patrolled by men wielding machetes and clubs. And it was here in Harnika, Goretti claims, that her family was murdered. Hello, Goretti. Hello. Sorry we are late to keep you waiting, I apologise. It's nice to see you, how are you? You are very well. According to a 2017 indictment issued by Rwanda, local school headmaster, Celestin Munyaburanga, is alleged to have helped set up the roadblock and participated in killings. Goretti says she didn't see Munyaburanga kill anyone herself, but she alleges that she saw him giving orders to kill, a claim that's not made in the indictment.
5: Munyabaranga would give orders of whom to kill or whom to leave. He used to give commands saying, take that one back, we'll kill them later, or finish this one at once.
6: The indictment alleges that during the
3: 1994 Rwandan genocide, Celestin Munyaburanga participated in the killing of 21 named Tutsi, as well as an unknown number of unidentified Tutsi.
5: He took my siblings, my sisters and my aunts. No one came back. None of them returned.
3: Were you in the house when that happened?
5: No. For me, I was hiding in the sorghum plantations outside.
3: With the killing of 14 of her family, 12-year-old Greti was suddenly forced to become a parent and breadwinner while the man whom the Rwandan government accuses of participating in her family's deaths may be living freely on the other side of the world.
5: It hurts me because we don't have anyone to cry to about our problems.
3: If Munyaburanga was brought back to Rwanda, if he came back to this place in Hanukkah and went before a court, would you be prepared to give evidence against him? Yes. The genocide in Rwanda lasted for just over 100 days between April and July of 1994. It was one of the worst pogroms of the 20th century. In August 1994, the ABC's Chris Masters reported on the devastation.
5: I've seen so many bodies today, I just, I just couldn't count. You can't think.
3: In a planned, state-sponsored campaign of violence to exterminate Rwanda's Tutsi minority, over half a million men women and children, were murdered by vigilante mobs and trained militia, members of the Hutu majority.
5: I've seen pictures of the Holocaust, but I never thought I'd actually be inside one.
3: It's been estimated at least two-thirds of Rwanda's Tutsi population were killed. Thousands of moderate Hutu also died. Most were hacked to death with machetes or killed with basic weapons. Neighbours killed neighbours, colleagues killed colleagues, teachers killed students.
5: General, uh, genocide is the deliberate extermination of a race of people. Is genocide too harsh a word to describe what occurred? No, not in the least.
3: Thousands of unarmed civilians were slaughtered in churches and schools where they sought sanctuary. In the aftermath, accused perpetrators fled all over the world. According to Rwanda's National Public Prosecution Authority, in 2008, Celestin Munyaburanga was tried in absentia by one of Rwanda's local community courts. He was found guilty and sentenced to life imprisonment. These Gachacha courts, as they're known, were a transitional justice mechanism established to try the vast number of alleged genocidaires, overwhelming Rwanda's jails and its national court system. Gachacha means grass because the trials were generally held outside by local communities under trees in marketplaces or public squares. There were no lawyers <coughs> and anyone was free to speak up for or against the accused. The Gachacha courts faced criticism over perceived failures in trial procedures, use of hearsay evidence, a lack of legal representation for the accused, untrained judges elected by their own communities, and also the risk of government interference. Other independent international observers, however, have described testimony provided in these community courts as a robust and fair form of public accountability, vital to Rwanda's recovery and reconciliation from genocide. According to the 2017 indictment, Munyaburanga was living in Canberra. The Rwandan government believes he's still living in Australia. Members of Rwanda's small diaspora say they've seen Munyaburanga in the country. So these reports are disputed. A family member in Brisbane, whom we should make clear, is not accused of any wrongdoing, has told us they believe Munyaburanga is not guilty and that they have no idea where he is. Prior to colonisation by the Belgians, Rwandan society had been divided into three social groups. The largest was the Hutu, most of whom were farmers. A smaller group, about 15% of the population, was the Tutsi mostly pastoralists, warriors and aristocrats. And the smallest group, the Twa, made up less than 1% of the Rwandan population. While Tutsi generally occupied a higher social strata, the groups were similar, sharing a language, religion and culture. Intermarriage was common, as was social mobility between groups. During its colonial rule, the Belgian regime formalised these divisions. They imposed identity cards that classified people by things such as physical characteristics, and they entrenched the elite status of the
5: Tutsi. The Batuzi are the predominant race. They came down from the north, leading their herds in search of fresh pastures. The Bautu are the Bantu peasants, with souls sad and passive, ignoring all thought for the morrow.
3: Resentment of the Tutsi elite built up among the Hutu over decades. This wasn't helped by the Tutsi's often exploitative treatment of the majority underclass. This disaffection culminated in 1959 with what's known as the Hutu Revolution, a series of violent riots that killed almost 20,000 Tutsi and drove many more into exile. Belgium relinquished power in 1962, handing over control to a Hutu majority government. Over the coming years, the Tutsi were consistently scapegoated for whatever troubles affected the country. A civil war raged, with the Tutsi rebel army operating from over Rwanda's borders.
0: The presidents of Rwanda and Burundi in Central Africa have been killed in a plane crash. Rwandan officials say the plane was shot down.
3: On the evening of April 6, 1994, a plane carrying Rwandan president, Juvenal Habyarimana, a Hutu, was shot down over the capital, Kigali. Tutsi rebels were accused of being responsible, and within hours, chaos erupted. A state-sponsored campaign of brutal communal violence spread from the capital across the country.
5: Rwanda and its capital, Kigali remain largely cut off to the outside world. Foreign nationals have been told to stay indoors. Many are in hiding. We've seen thousands
0: of bodies lying in the streets and in gardens. The hospital is barely functioning.
3: There's only one surgeon there. The slaughter of Tutsi began at first targeting political opponents before fanning out indiscriminately under the banner of Hutu power. There are still uh, people, uh,
2: civilians, armed uh, with machetes, uh, with uh, guns and uh, knives uh, on the street.
3: The ideology of Hutu power argued that Tutsi must be exterminated from Rwanda. Government-supported propaganda encouraged the violence. Radio broadcasts condemned Tutsi as snakes and cockroaches. He's saying here, ''Come, let us rejoice.'' the cockroach has been terminated. Militia known as Interahamwe, sought and killed Tutsi where they found them, as well as any moderate Hutu who offered them sanctuary.
5: Within 24 hours, the country had gone mad. Hutus hacked at their Tutsi neighbours, often in full view of Rwanda's international
3: community. Militia and soldiers encouraged citizens to participate in the genocide. Some Hutu civilians were forced by the military to murder their Tutsi neighbours. Others were incentivised, told they could take the money, food, land or livestock of those they killed.
5: This is where just one of a thousand massacres occurred. The Hutu people I've spoken to talk about their killings of the Tutsi without a trace of remorse.
3: During the crisis, after 10 Belgian peacekeepers were murdered, the United Nations voted to reduce its troop numbers on the ground from over 2,000 to just 270. The international community largely abandoned Rwanda. The country descended into violence. Okay, we still here. Yeah, yeah. Okay. In the same village where I met Karetti, whom we heard from at the start of the episode, I sit down with Manase. We walk to a quiet forest. He doesn't want to be overheard talking about the crimes he committed and for which he was found guilty in a local Gachacha community court. He says he spent two decades in prison. Manasseh claims it was Munyaburanga who recruited him to man the roadblock where most of the killing took place.
2: After establishing that
3: roadblock, they formed a team of strong youths that would go on the attack, and for us who were old, would remain seated at the roadblock. Those who had gone on the attacks would bring people and be killed there at the roadblock. Sitting at the roadblock, we could see them bringing people and killing them there. Manasseh tells us he didn't kill anyone directly, but he accepts his complicity in the deaths that occurred around him. I show him the 2017 indictment sent by Rwandan prosecutors to the Australian government that lists him as one of the people involved in the murder of members of Goretti's family. They were all among the things I
6: confessed to. I reported myself, admitted my role and asked for forgiveness because what happened was so bad. It's something that continues to hurt me.
3: He says that he didn't see Munyaburanga kill anyone. I ask him how he feels knowing that Munyaburanga has not faced a court for the crimes the indictment alleges he was involved in. For me, it would be better if he showed up and faced the court the same way we were punished for what we did and showed justice to the ones who lost their people. Manase is haunted by his involvement in the killings. He and Goretti are inextricably bound by that. And now both perpetrator and victim shop at the same stores, pray in the same churches. People have found a way to carry on, to forgive to the extent that they must to survive. But the enormity of what they suffered lives on. There may be a forgiveness, but never a forgetting. Frudward Rukashengabo was a district school inspector in Rabona, in Rwanda's east. Amid the nationwide confusion and panic of April 7, 1994, local sources claim that Rukashangabo attended a meeting of Hutu men in a place known as Rwamagana, a town square of sorts in the village of Katonde in the heart of Rabona district. It's alleged the men were divided into vigilante mobs and sent out across the district. April 7, 1994, was the very first day of Rwanda's brutal genocide. Alphonse is a self-confessed perpetrator who goes by the single name of Nazai. He says that on the day after the beginning of the genocide, he walked a short distance from his home to Rwamagana in the heart of Katonde village. He says he remembers feeling apprehensive and uncertain about what was to come. Nazai tells us he carried a length of wood taken from a eucalyptus plantation. They had cut
4: them that same morning, a big piece of wood.
3: It was not a small stick. He says he joined a group of men, including Rukashangabo. He claims he was with Rukashangabo during attacks on Tutsi at this time. They told us that the people who had killed Habiari Mana would kill us as well. Nazai says that on that day, he walked with a group to a property on the fringes of the village, seeking a Tutsi man, named Nanmurvaneza. They said we'd have to go look for him, that he was in contact with Tutsi rebels. When we got there, we found his younger brother and caught him. He says that this man, Bizimungu, refused to say where his older brother was. Nazai alleges that Rukashangabo told him to hit the man before going on to allege that Rukashangabo also hit him.
4: Rukashangabo told me to beat him, and I beat him. I beat him three times with a stick, and Rukashangabo said it wasn't enough. He hit him with the stick and he fell
3: down. Nazai claims that a different man in the mob, not Rukashangabo, then continued to beat Bizimungu. He died like that. He passed away? Yes, he passed away. Nazai would serve four years in prison before seeking and he says receiving forgiveness from Bizimungu's few surviving relatives. In 2007, Rukashangabo was convicted in absentia in the local Rwandan Gachacha community court of, and I quote, being well-known for murder, dragging dead bodies and burning them. He was sentenced to 30 years in prison because he wasn't present to participate in the trial process. Rwanda's National Public Prosecution Authority told us that Rukashangarbo does have the right to a fresh trial if he's ever returned to Rwanda, and is able to appeal his sentence. In 2009, two years after he'd been convicted in Rwanda, Rukashangarbo was granted a humanitarian visa by Australia on referral from the UNHCR, and he migrated from East Africa, where he'd been living. Despite making inquiries to Rukashangarbo and the relevant government departments, We don't know on what basis he was granted his humanitarian visa. Today, Rukashang is an Australian citizen. He lives in Brisbane and works as a driving instructor. Nazai appears to be fired by a sense of injustice that the one he alleges was involved in an attack that killed a man appears to have escaped accountability.
4: Him living there without being punished the same
3: way we were punished, it's
4: painful, it's not fair.
3: Rukashangabo has told the Guardian for Corner's investigation he's been the victim of false allegations and smear campaigns. He did not respond in detail to specific allegations and declined to be interviewed. Others in Rwanda's small and deeply divided diaspora say the allegations against him are politically motivated. Today in Rwanda, the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi is both everywhere and nowhere. The old ethnic divisions of Hutu and Tutsi have been, officially at least, erased to be replaced by a government-enforced spirit of national unity. That there is a political dimension to this is undoubted, but that doesn't mean it's not also genuine. Rwandans know the very worst of what disunity can look like. Contributing, too, to the erasure... Is the inescapable passage of time. Much of Rwanda's young population was not yet born when the genocide occurred. But the memorials in the cities and villages are tangible reminders. And the genocide lives in the memories and hearts of the people. They carry the scars on their bodies. They live with the stunted family trees, stripped of parents, grandparents, sisters, and brothers, and all who might have followed had those people lived.
1: Jane Lee here with a quick note about The Guardian. As you probably know, Guardian Australia's journalism is editorially independent, which means we set our own agenda. We don't have a billionaire owner, we don't answer to shareholders, so we're free from commercial bias. And this independence matters because it means we're able to challenge the powerful and hold them to account. Unlike many news organisations, we haven't put up a paywall. We chose a model that means our reporting is open to everyone and funded by our readers and listeners who can afford to pay. Every contribution, whether big or small, counts. So if you're able to support us, head to theguardian.com forward slash support full story. There's also a link on the full story page. Thanks. Thanks.
3: After around 100 days of killing, the Rwandan Patriotic Front and its rebel army, the RPA, took control of the country and effectively ended the genocide. A transitional government was established, led by Pasteur Bizimungu, a Hutu, with General Porkagami, a Tutsi, as his vice president. But the violence did not end here. The Tutsi led RPA is accused of committing multiple atrocities in retaliatory attacks for the genocide. One of the most notorious incidents was the massacre of displaced Hutus at a camp in Kabeho in April 1995.
1: About 80,000 Hutu refugees were at the camp when soldiers opened fire.
3: UN officials say
5: several thousand Hutu men, women and children were slaughtered
3: or trampled to death in the ensuing chaos. UN peacekeepers on the scene say they counted more than 4,000 bodies. Rwanda's official toll is 338. Today, the Rwandan Patriotic Front remains in control of the country with Kagame as president. For the past 24 years, he has ruled Rwanda as a de facto one-party state. The Kagame government says that crimes committed by the RPA have been investigated and properly prosecuted. In 2002, Rwanda set up the Gacaca community courts in an attempt to deal with an overflowing prison population of alleged perpetrators. Over a decade, more than 12,000 of these community courts tried more than one million cases that were designed to involve entire local communities in the justice process and promote national unity. They emphasised reconciliation and gave lower sentences for offenders who admitted to crimes, who were repentant and who cooperated with the court by telling grieving families where the bodies of their loved ones could be found. President Kagame said in 2002, in response to foreign critics, that it was critical for Rwandans to deal with the aftermath of the genocide themselves. It is
2: reminding Rwandans that you need to get down and resolve their problems. Nobody owes you a solution to your problems. These people don't care much for you they don't care about what happens to you, as they didn't care
0: during the genocide. How
3: do you talk to school children about something like genocide? How do you make sure that's appropriate for them?
6: So, when I speak to them, I make sure that I'm speaking to them in the lens of a 14-year-old, because that's how old I was when, when the genocide happened.
3: I'm driving with Frida through suburban streets. We're on our way to a local high school where Frida is speaking to teenagers about her experience of the Rwandan genocide. She carries the weight of her history and it's not a burden borne lightly. Thank
6: you, Year 11 and 12, for your patience. I grew up thinking and knowing that I was a snake and a cockroach meaning I was less than a human being. It was through the principal of the school that came in my class at the age of six, like I said. And he asked how many Hutu children are in the class, how many Tutsis are in the class. I didn't know what I was. And my best friend said, stand up, you're a Tutsi. So I stood up with her and we were made fun of. And from that day onwards, I then knew that I was a wrong tribe. We were led to a ditch where we're supposed to be killed from. And they gave you a choice. This is a favor they did to us, for us. You could choose. Do you want to be killed with a machete, a club, or a knife, or a big tree with nails? And I picked a young man with a club. Because I knew with a club, they'll hit you at the back of your head two or three times, and you'll be gone. And I said, please don't use a machete on me. But once he hit me, I lost my consciousness. I didn't wake up until everybody had died and they are burying, they're digging the ground on us.
3: Frida survived the massacre, but almost all of her family, siblings, parents, grandparents, cousins, did not. She emigrated to Australia and lives now in Melbourne. She and other survivors have sought to rebuild their lives in their new adopted countries, but they're still haunted by the past and a desire for justice.
6: So a lot of people live with monsters in their, in their lives, in their sleep, in their everyday life. These people, do they watch us? Do they know where we are? Do they follow us? You know, where exactly are they, are they living?
3: The next day, I visit Frida carrying documents. Frida, we've obtained a copy of this 2017 indictment. This was sent by the Rwandan government, to the mm. Australian government. It's an indictment and an international arrest warrant for a man called Celestin Munyaburanga. Yeah. Celestin Munyaburanga was from Nyanza. Yeah. Which is the district in where Rwanda I come where from. from. Yeah. Frida did not know Munyaburanga, and there's no evidence he was involved in the attack on her or on her family. I asked Frida about the roadblock the roadblock that the indictment alleges Mune Barunga was involved in setting up.
6: I know where the roadblock was exactly. You
3: know that place.
6: I know that place very well.
3: The hunt for alleged genocide heirs is fraught. Australia has never convicted a person of genocide. Claims that there are two alleged genocide heirs in Australia and the potential presence of more has raised questions about Australia's screening of people arriving in the country from conflict zones. It also raises questions about the willingness of authorities to investigate or prosecute alleged suspects who are in Australia. The Rwandan government wants both Munyaburanga and Rukashangabo extradited to face fresh trials or to be prosecuted in Australia. But prosecuting alleged genocide domestically would be difficult. Australia didn't make genocide a crime under domestic law until 2002 and the laws passed are not retrospective. So a charge of genocide predating 2002 couldn't be prosecuted under this law without changes to the legislation. Australia doesn't have an extradition treaty with Rwanda and has never extradited a person there. And while there are multilateral treaties such as the Genocide Convention under which Australia could extradite a person to Rwanda, Australia's courts or its government might be reluctant to return someone to a country with a chequered human rights record and, some observers argue, a compromised criminal justice system. The Australian Attorney-General, Mark Dreyfus declined a request for an interview, but a spokesperson said, The Australian government is committed to tackling serious international crimes and takes allegations of genocide very seriously. The Australian Federal Police works closely with foreign law enforcement agencies, international bodies and mechanisms who prosecute international crimes to ensure perpetrators are held to account and a spokesperson for the Home Affairs Minister told Guardian Australia and Four Corners.
1: As is long-standing practice, we do not comment on individual cases.
0: Oh, yeah. I'll get you, Andrew. Oh, thank you, that would be lovely. What, um,
3: Bob Reid or... is a man who goes looking for justice. The former New South Wales detective was part of a unit that investigated allegations that former Nazis had arrived in Australia. He then spent 20 years at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. And he tells me that for many of the victims of war crimes and genocide, justice is personal. And and a lot of them are
0: very concrete in what they want. They don't want the the politician or the military commander, they want the actual perpetrator.
3: In regard to this country's prosecution of alleged genocide and speaking generally, he says he believes the Australian government has been lax. The
0: simple solution to stopping uh, alleged war criminals coming to Australia is the screening process. There are so many mechanisms in place with so many conflicts throughout the world that the documentation is there. Um, And, okay, some people are going to slip through, but at least you've done your due diligence. You know, I I mean, I'm not saying that, um, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of alleged war criminals living in Australia. But statistically, it's got to be a possibility um, that there are... Alleged war criminals that have been able to come to Australia under the guise of a refugee—it's—it's it's not beyond the realms of possibility that perpetrators and victims of crime run into each other on the street, and it could happen in Australia. Should
3: Australia set up a permanent task force dedicated to investigating and prosecuting war crimes? Yeah, I think there should be a permanent unit um, dedicated
0: to investigating crimes. Um, If you look at countries like Germany, France, even the US, they all have dedicated teams.
3: I mean, the European countries, they leave us for dead. We went to the Australian Federal Police, whose Counter-Terrorism and Special Investigations Command has responsibility for the investigation of international crimes, like war crimes and genocide. An AFP spokesperson said...
1: Members of the AFP's CTSI command are highly experienced investigators many of whom have undertaken specialised training. The AFP works closely with foreign law enforcement agencies, international bodies and mechanisms, who prosecute international crimes to ensure perpetrators with a connection to Australia are held to account.
2: Fugitives can run. They will run. They will not hide forever.
3: We will leave no stone unturned until justice is done. In Rwanda's capital of Kigali, I meet with John Bosco Sibionore. For more than a decade, he's led Rwanda's Genocide Fugitive Tracking Unit. In 2017, the unit sent the indictment for the arrest of Celestin Munyaburanga to the Australian government. is the man alleged to have set up the roadblock at Hanaka and accused of participating in the killing of his Tutsi neighbours.
2: We invite the Australian police, together with the prostitution, to come to Rwanda. Why should they come to Rwanda? It's because... It's where the crime was committed. It's where the crime scene is, is located. Mm-hmm. It's where our witnesses will be found. Uh, so I don't, we have never received a, a response. We neither have a positive nor a negative response.
3: We understand the Australian government has been in touch with Rwandan authorities about the allegations against Baranga. In addition, it can be confirmed that an indictment for Rukashangabo has been issued by Rwanda and received by the Australian government. Sibian Ore goes on to speak generally about his concerns when alleged genocide heirs are not prosecuted.
2: When a country is not prosecuting a genocide case, when it has been asked to do so, it should know that it is giving safe haven to other perpetrators to come and enjoy that, that safe haven.
3: I spoke with Dr Nicola Palmer, who teaches international criminal law at King's College London and tracks the Rwandan government's pursuit of genocidaires around the globe. I asked her about the reliability of evidence heard in the Gachacha community courts.
1: I think the information that they provide is as robust as any other testimony. If you spoke in Gachacha, you spoke under your own name, you were immediately recognised, and so you really had to be able to defend what it was that you said.
3: Nicola's husband... Australian Dr. Phil Clark is a professor of international politics at the School of Oriental and African Studies and spent years studying the gachacha courts. He says it's critical to have these trials in Rwandan courtrooms where they can be seen by the Rwandan public. My own sense is that extradition is the best response in these cases if there is sufficient prima facie evidence to suggest that a trial is necessary. But If that is not possible for all sorts of reasons, then I think it's the responsibility of those host countries like Australia to find a way to deal with these cases through their their own courts.
4: I think
1: one has to be cautious, as we've said, around the the evidence that is initially presented in the indictment, but I do think it prompts and, and warrants further investigation.
3: Many of these individuals undoubtedly are innocent, but they should have their day in court and they should have to answer for the accusations against them, just as genocide suspects who were caught inside Rwanda had to do so in front of gachacha Rwanda's justice efforts are also the victim of its controversial domestic politics. While Kagame's government has brought stability and economic development to Rwanda, his administration is considered oppressive and authoritarian.
1: The NGO Human Rights Watch accused the Rwandan authorities of being responsible for the murders, beatings and abductions of dissidents abroad and called on the international community to combat what they called a campaign of extraterritorial
4: repression.
3: Internal criticism in Rwanda is fiercely repressed. According to Freedom House journalists risk intimidation, violence and imprisonment. Opponents of the government have been subject to surveillance and torture while elections have been marred by voter intimidation and fraud. It's a difficult dichotomy, the delicate fragility of Kagame's saviour complex running parallel to his dictatorial tendencies. And critics of Kagame's regime argue that allegations of genocide are often weaponised against political opponents. The Guardian Four Corners investigation has identified at least two cases where specific allegations of genocide were made against Rwandan nationals overseas that were later found to be unsubstantiated. And Human Rights Watch said in a report last year that the government had established a global ecosystem of repression using violence, judicial mechanisms and intimidation to try to silence criticism from Rwandans living around the world. Justice in Rwanda is never black and white, but innumerable shades of grey. 30 years on from Rwanda's 1994 genocide, much of the country's reconciliation is articulated in the Christian values of forgiveness and of repentance. But when the alleged crimes are so monstrous and their consequences so eternal, perhaps reconciliation is always imperfect, forever incomplete.
1: That was Guardian Australia reporter Ben Doherty. The Guardian and Four Corners recognise the seriousness of the allegations made against both Munya Barunga and Ruka Shungabo and make no assumption about their guilt or otherwise. This episode was produced and mixed by Camilla Hannan. The executive producer was Molly Glassie. with thanks to the ABC Four Corners team. You can read more of Ben Doherty's reporting on this story by going to theguardian.com, and we'll post some links in the show notes. That's it for today. I'm Jane Lee, and we'll be back with another episode of Full Story for you tomorrow. Catch you then.
4: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts?